Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to our um, Disability Study Channel on New Books Networks. So today I feel very happy to invite the, um, Dr. Clay, Dr. Clayer to join us to introduce her recentest book. So my first question I want to ask um, Dr. Clayer is that could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, of course. So I'm Esme Cleal and I'm a lecturer of his, the history of the British Empire at the University of Sheffield, which is in South Yorkshire in the UK. And I work on the history of disability and particularly in colonial contexts. Okay, thanks so much for your introduction. So my next question is about, um, I w- I'm wondering the reason why you take interest in the promising field of disability studies. Sure, yes, of course. So when I started working on disability about 10 years ago, I just started as a lecturer at Sheffield. And academically speaking, I wanted to build on my doctoral research, which was on missionary attitudes towards race and gender. But I was also grappling with my identity as a researcher with scoliosis, with painful scar tissue adhesions, serious and enduring mental health difficulties, dyslexia and fibromyalgia, all of which can also be described as hidden disabilities. So bringing together these personal, political and academic interests by investigating disability in the British Empire seemed a somewhat natural progression. And so I started reading around the field of disability studies and was just delighted to find such an interesting and varied field of research. Okay, thank you so much again for your answer. So then let's go to your book, um, Colonizing Disability. So my first question is about the first chapter of your book. So I'm wondering, um, could you please discuss, I mean, the discourse is utilized to construct the disability as a category of difference in the 19th century British Empire. Of course. So the premise of the book is that disability in the 19th century was constructed as different to a different category, which was increasingly constructed as normal uh, or normalcy, um, by which people tended to mean non-disabled, but they also enwrapped into that configuration ideas about whiteness, ideas about masculinity. Um, and ideas about heteronormativity. So the premise of chapter one builds on the work of numerous scholars of disability to argue that the pathway of disability draws an artificial or constructive distinction um, between people who are seen as disabled and people who are seen as non-disabled. And I'm sure that for for many of your listeners, um, this is just repeat what is already well established in the field, which is specific impairments, blindness or deafness, for example, have always existed but they were configured differently in different historical um, periods. And that's what what chapter one is about, is about looking at how that happened in the 19th century. So uh, different scholars have had different interpretations of why disability was configured different in the 19th century. So some such as um, Vic Finkelstein or Reddy Schroth and others have looked at it in relation to the Industrial Revolution. Um, other people, such as Helen Deutsch or Felicity Nussbaum or Chris Malmsey, have looked at the role that the Enlightenment played. Um, the literary critic uh, Leonard Davies has looked at ideas about normalcy, um, particularly emerging in the mid-19th century. Um, and others, such as Ian Hutchison, has looked at the census. So in chapter one, I was really trying to bring together these different um, fields of research, thinking about disability in this very particular moment. And using my knowledge as a historian of the British Empire, where this moment is often associated with a hardening of racism 
um, in the British Empire and white supremacy becoming more and more potent, and looking at how that might map onto fields about disability. And so my argument was really that disability is never seen as the same as race. They're always distinct, separate discourses. But they emerge in conversation with each other and often at the same moment. And that's what I was trying to do in chapter one. Okay, thank you so much, Professor. Um, let's turn to the next question. So the next question involves your second chapter. I want to invite you to discuss the transcolonial phenomenon of saving the other and its institutionalization in treating people with disability. Sure, yeah. So one of the responses I felt to um, disability being constituted as different or as something to be, quote, pitied, um, was um, the, the, the sense that disabled people needed the help of non-disabled people to flourish. Um, obviously, this is another construction, um, but I trace it through the emergence of deaf schools, uh, schools for the blind, um, and schools for people with a range of um, disabilities and impairments, uh, or perceived impairments and disabilities uh, in this period. And one of the things I was interested in was looking at how ideas about um, what I called saving disabled people um, migrate from one location to another location. And a lot of this happens um, through kind of the spokes of the wheel model of colonialism, where ideas about um, difference and disability were taken from Britain to various colonial locations, but they also circulated between colonial sites. So from Australia to Canada or from Ireland to New Zealand, for example, so not necessarily rooting through the imperial metropole. And in looking at this, I was really drawing on critical colonial scholars such as um, Zoe Laidlaw or Alan Lester, who've really looked at empire as a kind of a networked project. And that is something that explains the circulation of knowledge. And, and of course, that knowledge is, is constructed. Um, so chapter two was trying to do that. But as well as looking at the way in which uh, non-disabled people wanted to, quote, save disabled people, I was also interested in trying to think a bit about the agency of disabled people in contributing to these projects. So in particular, middle class, um, white, usually male, um, uh, deaf or blind people, for example, were quite important in putting forward arguments that um, their lower class uh, counterparts needed needed this kind of intervention. Um, and so that was how I was trying to look at ideas about disabled people's agency and how that occurred in conversation with um, the, the structures of empire. Okay, thank you so much again. So now let's go to, I mean, the third chapter of books. So for this chapter, I want to invite you to discuss the alternative freakery discourse and how its influence went beyond the freak show into the deaf and blind institutions. Oh, yes, of course. So in here, in this chapter, I was really drawing on a, the work of a lot of scholars um, and to name just two, I might think about Nadia um, Derba or um, Rosemary Garland Thompson. And in particular, Thompson has argued that the history of disabled people in the Western world is part of the history of being on display and being, this is a quote, being visually conspicuous whilst being politically and socially erased. Uh, that was her argument that board in um, the article, Seeing the, Dis Seeing the Disabled in 2001. 
And so whilst chapter one um, looked at um, the spectacle of being disabled in, quote, the East or the non-Western world, and chapter two built on this to examine how many disabled people were treated through schools and institutions, um, this did not characterize the lives of all those people considered to be disabled. And those labeled as, as being, quote, freaks, um, and by that they often meant having some form of physical anomaly, not only constituted part of the population of disabled people, but helped to constitute its conceptualization in that category in the public sphere. So in this chapter, I argue that the popularity of the freak show and the prevalence of impairment as a key part of it testifies to the significance of disability as a contemporary social concern. So relatedly, I argued that freak shows uh, contributed to how disability became objectified as something other and something beyond, if not antithetical to what might be described as the self. And I felt that in order to try and make this theoretical argument, what I needed to do in this chapter was really root it to individuals and to bring their stories to the fore a little bit. And so I looked at, for example, Joseph Merrick, who was described as the elephant man, or N and Channel Bunker, who were described as the original Siamese twins. I mean, all these words so problematic. Um, Tom Wiggins, who was called Blind Tom, or Creo, the missing link, etc. And it will be noted that many of these performers, uh, all in fact, except for Joseph Merrick, were not only um, disabled or having some form of physical anomaly, but were also people of colour and often from colonial sites. And this fact, which arises from the sources, tells us something I felt important about the relationship between disability and race in the constitution of bodily anomaly. Um, and the other thing that's to note about this chapter is that geographical framing was slightly different to um, some of my other chapters. So unlike a lot of scholarship, which is on um, this area, tends to focus on the US or, or possibly on Britain, I felt that there was also, again, something important about movement. Um, and so a lot of these performers moved from the US to the UK to other imperial sites. And so I felt that to focus solely on the British Empire, those characters that were legally defined as part of the British Empire in this period would have... Um, cut these stories to pieces, and so I included the US in this case uh, more than I did in, in other chapters. Again, so after that one, let's go to the next chapter. So for the chapter four, I'm wondering about interaction between the discourse of disability and the critical 19th century debate about what constitutes a human can. Sure, yes. So this chapter provides a closer look at deaf education. And deafness features as a point of particular interest in the book. And this is for two reasons. Um, firstly, I was interested in deafness because I've got some deaf cousins who introduced me to ideas about deaf politics. But it's also coming from the sources. And I felt that deafness proved a particularly um, dense point at which a lot of these ideas were discussed and articulated and argued about. So in fact, before I provided a closer look at deaf education, argue that the issue of deaf education spoke to issues of nationhood, belonging, the quote-unquote taming of the disabled body, the innate potential of human beings for, uh, big quotes again, improvement, 
and the boundary that could be drawn between humans and animals and the gulf that separated those imagined to be capable of, quote, civilization and those who could not. So the chapter uses the la notion of language and civilization as a lens through which to think about some questions about how able people were understood in the context of the British Empire. So in particular, I ask, how was language or the imagined lack of language used to contribute to the othering of disabled people? What was so special about language as to make this othering go so far as dehumanization? How was deaf education seen as civilizing? And how was it used to, quote, tame the disabled body? And what essentially does all this tell us about the politics of language in the British Empire? So the chapter begins with a discussion of the long-standing association in Western European thought between language and humanity. Debates about whether animals had access to language, which regained renewed importance in the Enlightenment and again with evolutionism. All of these debates identified language acquisition as what they called the true marker of what it meant to be human. And of course, it's had a terrible impact on people who were labelled as disabled. So those with aphasia or intellectual disabilities, uh, those who were deafne, de um, experienced deafness or hard of hearingness, and all this put those groups of people in highly vulnerable positions and they were therefore often considered to be um, uncivilised at best and subhuman at worst. So from the late 18th century, deaf education was a means of apparently rescuing um, rescuing in heavy quote marks, um, deaf people from um, lack of civilization and lack of religion. And in do doing this, I'm really trying to play off ideas that Douglas Ainton developed in the US context, um, where he looked at um, the relationship between um, deafness, evolution, and foreignness. And I argue that these trends can also be found in Britain and in the case of the British Empire, and in debates about BSL or British Sign Language. And this also therefore picked up imperial resonances about which languages were acceptable, which languages were uh, up to the task of education, um, which languages were, in short, civilized and those which were not. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, after talking about, I mean, after talking about the experience of that people, my next question is about, I mean, I mean, I mean, about the ableist discourse underlying transcolonial immigration policy. So immigration policy. So building on and occurring in conjunction with forced migration, such as enslavement, um, the century between 1815 and 1914 saw the largest volume of voluntary migration ever recorded. And those who were not enslaved or indentured or transported um, have largely been described as experiencing a unfettered form of migration, and that's that's a quotation from Patterson and Williamson in 1998. Um, and compared with the escalation of restrictions in the 20th century, it was indeed a period where um, ideas about immigration were much more um, liberal. But I argue this had really important qualifications. So there's been a long history detailing the racism upon which immigration restrictions were formed. Indeed, Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds have discussed the immigration restriction as key to the construction of a global color line based on the exclusion of people of color and growing ideas about the white blue supremacy in the US and the UK. However, I was interested in what this um what this what this 
work on racial um, exclusions told us about what was happening in with disabled people, uh, disabled people of different ethnicities. So the first argument that I made in this chapter is that legislation restricting the movement of disabled people was also a feature within colonies within the British Empire, and that the formation of this legislation operated beyond individual national context. And like the discussions of racial difference involved the transnational spread of knowledge about the body and the adaption of restrictive legislation through colonial and ex-colonial um, networks. Secondly, I sought to argue that the exclusion of disabled people was not something that just can be added on to our understanding of racial exclusions, but something that intersected with it as something that um, was bound up in how racial exclusions were justified um, formed. And again here I found um, Douglas Bainton's work on the US incredibly useful here, um, but also Alison Bashwoodford's work on uh, imperial hygiene, where she argues that border sites were, I quote from her, dense administrative sites. Um, and so in this chapter I was really interested in what was, what or who were be being constructed as of worth to the nation and argued that these were particular kinds of bodies, particular kinds of minds. These people were, were white, North European, but they were also regarded to be mentally and physically fit, and that fitness was defined in rigid terms. The values attached to race, ability and gender were mutually constituted, and masculine bodies were imagined to be independent working bodies. Whether or not a disabled person could work, their body was always read as dependent, incapable, and as a liability. And this is reflects on ideas about female migrants um, as well. Great. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for your uh, discussion about Avery's assumption and its cause in the immigration policy. So that, after that, let's return to the experience of that people. So my question for for this one for this chapter, I mean chapter five is about the formation of that identity in the community in the nineteenth century. Of course, yes. So chapters one to four discuss the way in which disability was viewed, as we might put it, from the outside in, constructed by non-disabled people who believed they occupied a position of normalcy, against which disability was othered. Let's look at different perspectives. Instead, exploring how one particular group of people defined as disabled, deaf people, experienced and articulated that identity. Whilst deaf people were labelled as, I quote, foreigners in their native land, a quote that appears in Bainton's work as well as in mine, in this chapter I argue that deaf people came to inhibit distinct cultural identities, positively identifying with what they called the deaf world, or in some cases, the deaf nation. So I argued that working from the 21st century backwards, there's good reason here to focus on the deaf as a particular case study. Contemporary theorists have argued that deaf identity is so strong that it operates as a form of ethnicity. They've argued that it's only audist audiology, that which privileges hearing ways of being, that leads deaf people to be considered as disabled at all rather than as members of a cultural group organised around sign language. BSL in the British case, Auslan in the Australian case, ASL in the American case or the US case, etc. And these languages are not simply manually transformed forms of the English language, 
as for example, we might look at Braille as a tactile expression of written English, but they're different languages altogether with distinct vocabularies and grammatical structures. So as Leonard Davies writes, if an ethnos is defined as a culturally similar group sharing a common language, then the deaf conceivably fit that category. There continues to be disagreement about the utility of framing deaf people as an ethnic group. From one perspective, the psychologist and theorist of deafness, Harvard Lane, argues that the concept of the deaf world conforms to many of the characteristics commonly identified by social scientists as markers of ethnicity. Thus, he argues that deaf people share a collective name, a feeling of community including self-recognition, shared language, shared history, kinship, distinct knowledge, customs and social structures. But from a different perspective, Leonard Davies warned of the dangers of potential redundancy of ethnicity as a framework. Has in deaf culture be placed alongside one generational identity, such as queer identity. So I don't intend here to get into this really complicated debate about the best way to 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 frame ideas about deafness, but I wanted to use it as a starting point to think about the deaf community in the 19th century, um, somewhat before um, these debates arose, also in the early 20th century. And in particular, I wanted to explore what deaf belonging meant the intersection of identities based around nationhood with those constructed around disability. So first they are asked, did disabled, did deaf people and disabled people have a sense of community in the British Isles in the 19th century? And I looked at deaf schools and missions and associations. Who so? Secondly, I asked, does that sense of deaf belonging or identity relate to a national belonging? To do this, I looked at theoretical plans for a deaf space on a wider scale, such as a deaf colony or a deaf state. And thirdly, I asked, how do these affiliations operate beyond a national context? I suggested there was a potentially transformative element to many of these identities and explored how deaf identities operated across borders in the form of deaf congresses and conferences. In concluding, I returned to questions of deaf ethnicity and asked whether the deaf community was not also determined by class, race, and gender. Okay, thank you again for your discussion of the formation of deaf identity and community in the 19th century. And I will appreciate the answer to this question because it's strongly um, closely associated with my own research. I would say because my research is about the history of deafness and the formation of a deaf identity in China in the early 20th century, I can find a very similar phenomenon, similar pattern. I mean, in China, in the early 20th century, deaf is not just like deafness and deaf. It's not just like a political or social a social category. It became an identity. So anyway, let's go to the last chapter of your book. Thank you. Your book. Um, I want to invite you to discuss anxiety about disability at the turn of the 20th century. Sure. So the final chapter of the book is a chapter about um, the public articulation of disability in terms of concerns about the British nation. So in her study on deafness in Victorian Britain, Jennifer Esmail has argued that towards the end of the 19th century, there was a shift in attitudes towards deafness, that it stopped being a private issue or an individual misfortune and became a public threat. And in this chapter, I argue that there was a change that occurred more broadly than in attitudes towards deafness. It occurred in attitudes towards disability at large. 
So from sensory impairment to stature to intellect, from the end of the 19th century, disability became an issue relevant not only to the lives of disabled people and those who imagined themselves to care for them, but to everyone. It became not only a national issue, but also an imperial concern. And to some extent, this is an argument made in passing by Bernard Porter in his study of the role that imperialism played in metropolitan Britain about the impact of the South African War on ideas about national health. But Porter suggested that the South African War was one of the first times that the questions of bodily fitness and the, quote, problem of the unfit also became issues of national security. But whilst I look at the impact of the South African War in some detail, my argument here is that the conditions that led to this shift precipitate, is that the right word, precipitated, the war itself, having their roots instead in concerns about heredity. I argue that heredity pulled together concerns that were arising about the body and physical difference. And ultimately, I argue that these reconfigurations tie in with similar shifts that were also occurring around attitudes towards race and class. So historians such as race, such as Christine Bolt, have suggested there was a hardening of racial attitudes in the mid-19th century. And in some later, uh, in the later 19th century, we get the age of high imperialism and the massive, um, the vast conquest of colonial Africa, which provided an additional backdrop to which attitudes towards race regrouped. Another important movement was the race rise of thinking about degeneration and eugenics. And what I argue here is that some of these concerns not only applied to disability as well, but coalesced around the same issue. Now, this horrible word, feeble-mindedness, became a category ostensibly about mental impairment, but was also an issue which spoke to issues of ideas about race and class, um, and also included ideas about sexuality. So, um, many women who had children outside of um, wedlock uh, were seen to be, quote, feeble-minded. So as I've done elsewhere in the book, I used here the concept of ableism to understand the mutual constitution of class, race, gender, and disability. That is the valorization of the strong, masculine, white, non-disabled, young adult body. And I argued here that these qualities became increasingly linked with heredity and therefore Okay, thank you again for your answer to the question. So, uh, Professor Claire, I very appreciate you coming to our, I mean, podcast and introduce your book. So at the end, I want, uh, sorry, thank you so much. At the end, I want to talk to our audience. I highly recommend you consider if you, I mean, if you are interested in either history of disability, history of British Empire, or history of 19th century and early 20th century. You may consider by you may consider by a copy of Dr. Claire's newest book, uh, sorry, her book, um, Colonizing Disability, and read it. It's a fantastic book. So thank you so much for your listening. Thank you very much. 